We're seeing again today what the people of Poland and the people across Europe saw for decades. Appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. No. 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 Yes. Yes. Yes, you are right, Mr. President. Thank you, sir. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, now in our 20th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, and we will get to the appetites of the autocrat. I like that turn of phrase <laughs> uh, in a little bit. Hello, Desiree Doyle. Hello. How are you? I am good. So it was uh, just uh, really a day or so ago when I covered some elections from 2022 that were only uh, recently uh, finally decided, given the discoveries in January in Monmouth County, New Jersey, January of this year, and in late December of last year in the Bay Area here in California in Alameda County, specifically in ranked choice voting elections in Oakland, Berkeley and San Leandro. Uh, It was only recently discovered that the computerized voting system tabulators miscounted a number of races and actually named some winners to be losers and some losers to be winners uh, who were actually certified and sworn into office uh, after the November 2022 elections before the problems were discovered. So we are only just barely done, finally, with the 2022 results, Des. <laughs> Barely. And now, guess what? It is time for election 2023. 
No, we are not jumping to 2024. Don't worry. (laughs) With a number of important special elections that were held on Tuesday. I'll get to those uh, non-certified, non-verified results in a moment. But joining us shortly thereafter will be one of my favorite guests, if it's usually never good news when he is on with us. Stephen Schwartz, longtime nuclear weapons policy analyst, former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. You know, those folks who keep the doomsday clock? Well, he will be here momentarily to discuss Russian President Vladimir Putin's unilateral announcement on Tuesday that Russia is now suspending their participation in what is actually the last remaining nuclear arms agreement between the U.S. and Russia, the so-called New START Treaty. What does that mean moving forward? How, how much should we be concerned, if at all? And how disturbed should we be about Putin's continuing subtle and or not so subtle references to or threats to use nuclear weapons as his appalling invasion of sovereign neighboring Ukraine marks its gruesome one year anniversary this week? Speaking of appetites of the autocrat. But hey. As the uh, critical battle of uh, democracy against autocracy plays out in Eastern Europe, we've got our own version of some of that here in the U.S. Thankfully, so far, much less violent uh, in a a few special elections in several different states on Tuesday. And I got to say, if you are a Democrat, most of the news from Tuesday night is, as it was last November, surprisingly good news. We begin in our uh, highly selective and curated list of Tuesday's (laughs) highest profile contests by uh, noting, as always, and as the uh, recent news of missed tallies discovered in Monmouth County, New Jersey and Alameda County, California, make clear, few, if any, of these reported results are actually verified at this hour by human beings. But in uh, in New Hampshire, where 40 percent of the towns still actually Uh, hand count their hand marked paper ballots at the precinct on election night. Well, in New Hampshire, Democrat Chuck Grassy. No, not Chuck Grassley of Iowa, but (laughs) Chuck Grassy of New Hampshire secured reelection to the New Hampshire State House on Tuesday in resounding fashion as Daily Coast elections David Neer reports, defeating Republican David Walker 56 to 44 or uh, by about 12 points that uh, three and a half months after their initial face off last November, those same two guys ended in an exact tie. Wow. The victory shrinks the GOP's margin in the uh, New Hampshire State House to just 201 to 198, the narrowest gap between the parties in state history. And it puts Democrats one step closer to flipping the New Hampshire State House next year, if not sooner. One safely blue seat is currently vacant. So do the math. As Near notes, this election almost did not take place at all on Tuesday. Now, New Hampshire has traditionally held special elections to resolve tied legislative contests, such as the one that was in November. After that deadlock, Republicans signaled their intent 
to follow precedent, to hold a special election, to sort it out. But on the day that lawmakers convened in November of last year to address the matter, the GOP's official Twitter account shot off a tweet congratulating, quote, Representative David Walker, revealing the party's plan to try to use its barest of majorities in the House to simply seat Walker as the winner of the race for Stratford County District Number 8. Wow. So they had a, the Republicans in New Hampshire had a scheme to install somebody, and uh, then everybody found out? Well, uh, they found out when they announced it, but what happened, this attempted power grab, wow. well, it appears to have backfired because everyone found out, and a handful of Republicans ended up joining with Democrats to vote down the GOP proposal that they just seat the guy who mm. didn't win, who actually tied to dispense with the uh, planned uh, special election. Uh, but so a few Republicans did the right thing. That set the stage for Tuesday's election and then Walker's 12-point defeat to Grassy. Uh, a win for democracy over autocracy here at home, yeah, I would no say. no kidding. <clears throat> the result also... Uh, represented a considerable overperformance for Democrats. Now, remember, this election was absolutely tied last November, but uh, Joe Biden carried this district by about five points in 2020. Grassy's 12-point win on Tuesday means that he ran about seven points ahead of the president, a very good sign for Democrats, and, yes, a pattern seen elsewhere, interestingly enough, on Tuesday. Near suggests that uh, the Tuesday outcome shows Democrats are well-positioned to make further gains and perhaps take back the New Hampshire House in the near future. Uh, it would be the first time in years in a closely divided swing state, perhaps it could even happen before 2024, given that the giant 400-member house they have in New Hampshire has a actually a huge turnover rate. And so uh, they have to hold special elections frequently. So good news for sure for Democrats there in that uh, swing state. In the great Commonwealth of Virginia, Democratic State Senator... Jennifer McClellan appears to have easily won the special election for Virginia's 4th U.S. Congressional District. She won by about 49 points with 75 percent of the vote. She will now become the first black woman to represent the Commonwealth in Congress. That victory is well ahead of Joe Biden's 36-point margin in that same district. So another outperformance by a Democrat in a special election on Tuesday. McClellan defeated Republican Leon Benjamin in the heavily Democratic district to uh, succeed the late Democratic Congressman Donald McEachin. He died in November after uh, shortly after winning last year's midterm elections. McEachin had defeated the same Republican Leon Benjamin in November for that seat with 69 and a half percent of the vote. So McClellan actually improved on his victory over Benjamin by getting uh, uh, 49, well, 75 percent of the vote compared yeah, would, to 69 and a half uh, last I would, November. I would definitely say that seems pretty decisive to me. Well, it's decisive, but it's an improvement from just a few two months, months ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, for the Democrats here. 
uh, where, by the way, one might have expected Republicans to improve on their performance over the midterms, but they didn't. Democrats did, however. So that may be another good omen for Democrats. Uh, And yes, in Virginia's legislative elections, where they are held in odd number years later this year. During her time in the General Assembly, McClellan has pushed legislation on several issues, including climate, gun reform, education, rolling back restrictions on abortion rights. A measure was signed into law in 2020 that she helped pass when the state still had a Democratic governor. She also spearheaded the Voting Rights Act of Virginia, which was signed into law in 2021. Again, before the Republican Glenn Youngkin came in as governor and uh, that measure aimed to eliminate voter suppression and intimidation in the Commonwealth. McClellan also sponsored her chamber's resolution that helped Virginia become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which bans discrimination on the basis of sex and guarantees equality for women under the Constitution. So she will now head to the U.S. House. Good news there. Also in Kentucky, not exactly a swing state, Democrat Cassie Chambers Armstrong held a state Senate seat in another special election, racking up a 54-point win, putting her a whopping 23 points ahead of Biden's 31-point margin in the district. Now, again, the old rule of thumb, you know, was that Republicans traditionally outperform Democrats in special elections, particularly when there is a Democrat in the White House. Well, apparently so much for that old rule of thumb, because that does not seem to be happening, at least in this uh, first round of special elections in 2023. Uh, Now, it's early still. Democrats have uh, got to see the you know, got to see the news from Tuesday night as encouraging nonetheless as they head towards 2024. It was special election results not unlike those on Tuesday where Democrats had outperformed expectations last year that led some of us who were paying close attention to believe that the Republicans expected red wave last November in the midterms was unlikely to materialize. And as we all now know, it did not. So, you know, it's early. These are only special, a few special, isolated special elections. But read the tea leaves. Is it a good sign for Democrats in 2024? We will see. But so far, so good for the party which still supports democracy over autocracy in this country. And in perhaps the most encouraging news for democracy itself from Tuesday night, Wisconsin held its spring primary on Tuesday ahead of a critical April 4 general election. The marquee contest on Tuesday was the race for an open seat on the state Supreme Court, an officially nonpartisan primary between two progressives and two so-called conservatives with the top two vote getters advancing to the April 4 general election. Well, on Tuesday, one liberal and one conservative uh, each won the most votes in that race, setting up a hugely significant Wisconsin Supreme Court general election race in just over one month's time. Progressive Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz and right wing former state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly 
Uh, they will square off on April 4 in an election that could finally alter the state's trajectory on a seven-justice high court currently controlled 4-3 to three by right-wingers with a uh, conservative now retiring from the bench. So this seat will be a swing seat, uh, seat for the uh, Supreme Court in Wisconsin, uh, a court that many of us have been watching not turn blue for many years now. If Protasiewicz wins, however, liberals will retake the court majority for the first time in nearly 15 years. In the four-person race on Tuesday, Protasiewicz was called quickly by AP as the top vote-getter with 46% of the overall vote. She defeated her progressive competitor, Everett Mitchell, who took just 7% of the vote. Meanwhile, Dan Kelly appears to have snatched the second-place uh, slot with 24% of the vote on Tuesday after duking it out with Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Darrow, who finished with 22% for a very close third place if those numbers hold up. But uh, the race turned ugly between the two right-wingers as Kelly, who ended up apparently winning on Tuesday, had refused to say if he would endorse Judge Darrow if she won in the primary. <laughs> Kelly was uh, also revealed just last week to have been paid $120,000 by Republicans to advise on Donald Trump's 2020 fake electors scheme in Wisconsin as part of Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. Kelly has been on the RNC payroll, in fact, as recently as December. That's that's the nonpartisan judge for you there in uh in, in Wisconsin. He was on the payroll of the Republican National Committee. When the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court narrowly dismissed Trump's election lawsuit in 2020, Kelly attacked one of the con so-called conservative justices on the high court. He has accused the uh, his accused groups who support abortion rights of trying to, quote, preserve sexual libertinism. Uh, he has expressed support for overturning marriage equality. And so now he is running for the uh, state Supreme Court. Now, the Democrats in the state actually helped him, helped Kelly to become the uh, second place winner there because they think he will be easier to win than Dora would have been. And uh, they may be right. In fact, Kelly already lost a race for the Supreme Court by a whopping 10-point margin just a few years ago. And uh, in a closely divided state, to lose a race for the uh, to a, a progressive on the Supreme Court by 10 points, well, suffice to say, Democrats are glad that Kelly won on Tuesday night. So, uh, you know, this could be the uh, liberal Protasiewicz uh, she campaigned on protecting abortion rights. Uh, she called the uh, gerrymandered legislative maps in Wisconsin rigged and for good reason, because all of the statewide executive races for governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general and so forth are now held by Democrats. But the state legislature is so gerrymandered and is so rigged that both the House and Senate remain in control of Republicans. Yes, it is wildly gerrymandered. So now the high court in the state could finally flip. If you add up the results for uh, the two 
progressive candidates versus the two uh, so-called conservative candidates. Well, the two liberals got about 518,000 votes on Tuesday. The right-wingers got 442,000 votes on Tuesday. If that holds up, it looks like the state high court in Wisconsin is finally going to flip to progressives. All right, there's your first major election results roundup of uh, 2023. And in some uh, somewhat less happy news, okay, much less happy news, Russian President Vladimir Putin is now rattling nuclear weapons again, or at least... As of Tuesday, suspending long-time nuclear weapons treaties with the U.S. Nuclear weapons policy expert Stephen Schwartz joins us next on the broadcast. Are you ready? Buckle up. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Are you, are you, are you ready for the great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your Savior in the air? Will you shout or will you cry when the fire comes from on high? Are you ready for the great atomic power? Well, I'm not ready. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. During his State of the Nation address to the Russian people on Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Moscow is suspending its participation in the latest, I'm sorry, in the last remaining U.S.-Russia arms control treaty. The so-called New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START, is formerly known as the Treaty Between the United States of America and the Russian Federation on Measures for the Further Reduction and limitation of strategic offensive arms. So, yeah, no wonder it's called New Start instead. Signed by the Obama administration in 2010, it took effect in February of 2011 as a 10-year agreement. The pact had replaced the Treaty of Moscow, known as SORT, which was to expire in December of 2012. It follows the START 1 treaty, which expired in December of 2009, the proposed START 2 treaty, which never entered into force, and the START 3 treaty, for which negotiations were never concluded. Putin's declaration on Tuesday will have an immediate impact on U.S. visibility into Russian nuclear activities, but the pact was already believed to be on life support, even before the Russian leader's unilateral announcement. During his address, Putin also said that Russia should stand ready to resume nuclear weapons tests if the U.S. does so, a move that would end a global ban on nuclear weapons testing in place since the end of the Cold War. Explaining his decision to suspend Russia's obligations under the 2010 New START Treaty, Putin accused the U.S. and its NATO allies of openly declaring the goal of Russia's defeat in Ukraine. Quote, they want to inflict a strategic defeat on us and try to get our nuclear facilities 
at the same time, the Russian leader said, declaring his decision to suspend participation in the treaty. He later sent a draft bill on the pact's suspension to the Kremlin-controlled parliament, which quickly rubber-stamped the measure on Wednesday, giving Putin sole authority to resume Moscow's participation in the pact whenever and if ever he wants. The decision to suspend the treaty's nuclear warhead and missile inspections is built into New START, follows Moscow's cancellation last year of talks that had been intended to salvage an agreement that both sides have accused the other of violating. Putin accused the U.S. and its NATO allies of openly working for Russia's destruction. The U.S., however, had previously walked away from the treaty when the Trump administration declined to engage in negotiations to extend it, accusing Moscow of flagrant violations at the time. But when President Joe Biden took office in 2021, his administration signed a five-year extension. Following Putin's announcement on Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called the Russian move, quote, deeply unfortunate and irresponsible, noting that the U.S. would be, quote, watching carefully to see what Russia actually does, adding that the U.S. would, quote, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and that of our allies. Last month, the State Department reported it could not certify that Russia was in compliance with New START because of its refusal to allow on-site inspectors last year. On-site inspections had actually halted during the COVID epidemic and apparently never returned to the treaty's previously agreed-upon protocol, as I understand it. So what exactly did New Start do? How important was it and uh, what do, or is it and what does Moscow's decision to suspend it actually mean? Is this, in fact, a serious escalation in tensions or uh, nuclear dangers between U.S. and Russia? Or is it mostly tactical bluster amid a war of aggression between Russia and Ukraine that Russia, if not necessarily outright losing, does not appear to be winning? as the world marks this week's grim one-year anniversary of Putin's unjustifiable, at least as I see it, and unlawful invasion of their sovereign neighbor. It's been a while since we last spoke with him on this program, but uh, while I always enjoy talking to him, it is usually not great news when he is here. Nonetheless, we are joined once again today by our old friend Stephen Schwartz, a longtime nuclear weapons policy analyst and expert and the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the decades-old proprietors of the infamous Doomsday Clock, the analogous warning to the world of how close we may be at any given time to annihilation of planet Earth. Oh, that's all. A clock which just last month, by the way, was ticked forward to 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it has ever been to, well, doomsday, as the scientists who make such determinations declared in late January. One of them, I believe, is Stephen Schwartz, who is still a non-resident senior fellow with the Bulletin. He's also former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, author of the book, Atomic Audit, the, Co the Cost and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940, and, frankly, a must-follow on the Twitters, as far as I'm concerned, where you can find him as Atomic 
analyst. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Good to be here. Good to have you here, I think. Before I get to my questions on all of this, I just want to make sure, did I get anything egregiously wrong in that intro and, and my basic explanation of the groundwork and the, the, the general facts of the case here? No, I think you covered it pretty well. The only qualification I might make is that the five-year extension of New Start, mm-hmm. which was enacted in 2021 after uh, President Biden took office, mm-hmm. uh, was by mutual agreement with with Russia and with mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. So it wasn't a one-sided thing. Mm-hmm. That extension was actually built into the treaty. It's a very simple matter to uh, enact, and for various reasons, the Trump administration just wasn't interested in doing it, but uh, but Biden did. Well, so that's that's why that happened. And uh, it it sort of uh, jumps ahead of where I was uh, hoping to go here. But any idea why the Trump administration had no interest in extending that treaty? You know, <laughs> it's it's it is puzzling. On the one hand, uh, Donald Trump clearly uh, had. Um, uh, I guess we could call it a thing for Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. and uh, did not want to cross him or disagree with him. So you think that something that would uh, benefit Russia, would benefit Putin, would be something that Trump would be interested in. But I suspect that there were a number of people in his administration who were not keen to, as they saw it, reward Putin with an extension when they thought they might be able to extract something uh, from him first. Some, clarity about, you know, uncertain development of new nuclear weapons or commitments to do things, you know, perhaps a little bit beyond the treaty or maybe even an agreement to start negotiating a new treaty. And obviously mm-hmm. that none of that happened. There were zero negotiations during the Trump administration on any of these things. And in fact, Trump unilaterally walked away from the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, mm-hmm. which was uh, negotiated during Ronald Reagan's administration is the only treaty to completely outlaw uh, an entire class of nuclear weapons. So we actually moved backwards during those four years. Well, you you say that the extension was actually a reward, would have been a a reward for Putin, and yet he seems to be pulling out of it now. Let's let's start with exactly, just in general terms, uh, what New START did or does and how Putin's declaration now changes that or doesn't change that, as you see it, in in real-world terms. Well, fundamentally, New START provides stability and predictability for both the United States and Russia. So it builds on, as you mentioned, previous arms control agreements, um, all of which, with the exception of the INF Treaty, have dealt with uh, strategic or long-range nuclear weapons. We've never had a treaty that has focused on short-range or tactical nuclear weapons because uh, neither side, but especially Russia, has been interested in uh, having the other poke into uh, the vagaries of its of its mm. nuclear arsenal, um, so those have always been unregulated. But strategic, we've got a long track record going back about 50 years or so. And what the treaty did fundamentally was set an upper limit of 1,550 uh, warheads, mm-hmm. uh, deployed warheads, for each side. But there's two important caveats about that. One is as I just said, it just covers deployed weapons. So both sides can and do have many, many other weapons that are not operationally deployed but mm. are in various degrees of storage and could be pulled out and reactivated again 
if they saw the need for it uh, within the constraints of the treaty, but they have not been eliminated yet. Uh, the other is that under the terms that both sides agreed to, terms that actually uh, echo the definitions of previous arms control agreements, uh, operationally deployed uh, is deliberately vague when it comes to mm. strategic bombers. Mm -hmm. So we count one bomber. For the purposes of the counting rules of the treaty, one bomber equals one bomb, mm -hmm. even though, uh, for example, the B-21, uh, sorry, not the B-21, the B-2 bomber uh, can carry uh, multiple nuclear bombs, mm. uh, or the B-52 can carry up to 20 nuclear-armed cruise missiles. But for the purposes of the treaty, it only counts as one, and the same thing goes for Russian aircraft. So within those bounds, though, that's 1,550 is, is, is the upper limit. Uh, both sides are, are operating under that limit right now. Russia has continued to pledge that it will continue to... Uh, uh, to not violate that limit. The caps, and, yeah. And uh, it's also said that um, it will abide by other terms of the treaty. It's, it's funny, it's strange, actually, that the announcement yesterday, there is no provision in the treaty, unlike for extending it by five years, there's no provision for suspending the treaty. You're either in it or you're not. And like any other international treaty, any, tr any treaty party can say, you know what, this isn't an international interest anymore we are going to leave. Mm -hmm. And the terms of the treaty say that you can do that, you have to give six months' notice, and at the end of six months you're formally out of the treaty. So the suspension is, you know, I guess a wily way of uh, uh, Putin trying to get what he wants, which is, I think, frankly, just an extension of what he's been doing over the last year. This is a nuclear threat uh, by another name. It's mm -hmm. an effort to frighten uh, the publics in the United States and NATO and in Ukraine into letting him basically blackmail those countries into doing whatever he wants uh, with Ukraine. So he's got this this bludgeon, and it's really the only tool that he has right now, and he's, he's waving it around and threatening to use it, and now he's threatening to, uh, well, not threatening, he said he's not going to comply with certain parts of the treaty unless and until his you know demands are satisfied. But uh, there is no legal basis for, for what he's doing. And, and I ha I've got some further questions about that, about his uh, nuclear uh, saber-rattling. Saber but uh, just to be clear, on this, uh, on this treaty itself that he is, says he's uh, suspending, even though there's no provisions for that, you noted, uh, Stephen Schwartz, you know, an upper limit of 1,550 nuclear warheads deployed on each side, and they each have their own, uh, you know, additional stockpiles. Um, Russia, as you also note, has said they would still respect the caps that were set by New START. Um, that it's really just it seems like that they are suspending the ability of the U.S. to carry out inspections of stockpiles. So given all of those weapons that are actually allowed under this treaty, I, I don't right. think it would take, you know, more than a thousand to pretty much wipe out the, the planet at this point. So given all of those weapons, how important are those inspections in reality, if they, you know, are able to inspect them and say, yep, you've got, you know, 15, uh, no more than 1,500 uh, or whatever it is, 1,550. Is this much of a treaty in the first place, to be frank? It's, it's no, it's, it is, it's, I, I can understand why, why people might think that, but it is, it's an important uh, treaty and it was never intended to be 
the end of the process. Mm -hmm. It was the next step mm -hmm. in treaty making to reduce our nuclear arsenals. The United States has come down about 80% since its peak deployment mm -hmm. of more than 31,000 nuclear weapons in 1967. Uh, today we have deployed operationally fewer than 2,000. So we've come a long way, but as you said, there's still, you know, enough to ruin your day, as, <laughs> yes. the, as the old bumper sticker from the 1980s put it. Uh -huh. So, uh, no, but it's, but it's important to go back again to that uh, predictability and stability. So, you know, we had the ability under the treaty uh, up to 20 times a year to basically do surprise inspections at various facilities where we would show up mm -hmm. uh, unannounced or with very little um, warning and say that we wanted to look at various missile systems or various warheads, not not inside the warheads, but just to make sure certain warheads mm -hmm. were, were where they were supposed to be. Now, we do have what are called national technical means, which are very high-power reconnaissance satellites and other means of, of detecting compliance or noncompliance uh, with arms control agreements. To be, but to be able to put people on the ground when we want, where we want, and the same thing goes for Russia, uh, gives you a certain measure of confidence that what you're being told and what you're observing from space is actually what's going on. Now, those inspections were suspended uh, when the pandemic began mm -hmm. because neither side felt that it was safe to have people flying around, but Russia has refused to resume them, mm -hmm. even though the pandemic is by and large over. Um, so that's, you know, problem number one. It's, you know, they said the United States is not in compliance, um, but they're the ones that have not allowed... U.S. inspectors back. Mm. So we're ready and willing to have them come back, but they've got to go and play along, you know, by the rules, too. So yeah. that plus the, uh, uh, plus the counting rules and everything else gives you some assurance that there are not nefarious things going on that could lead to surprises, which could trigger crises, which could, in the worst case, trigger a war. So it's important in that regard. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's building on on a history of agreements over many, many, um, you know, decades. Uh, so we know, for example, that Russia has been working on, I mean, some years ago, long before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin announced with some grand flourishes, actually during the Trump administration, that he was working on a number of very disturbing and alarming types of new weapons. Yep. It's entirely possible that none of them will ever actually be deployed, but nevertheless he made the announcement. Uh, some of these weapons would have been covered by New START, and some of them wouldn't, uh, and maybe that was the point. But uh, when you have these inspections, when you have this agreement, when you have both sides talking to each other, you have mechanisms in place for dealing with uncertainties, uh, for dealing with uh, question, any questions yeah. that might arise. And when you don't, when you're not talking, and one, one side is you know, fighting an active war and threatening to coerce you, um, that's where you get into trouble. The, uh, we mentioned uh, Donald Trump earlier and his uh, unilateral withdrawal, I guess, from the, uh, the INF, the Inter Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2019. He at the time cited, or his administration cited, Russian noncompliance, concerns about China's intermediate range missile arsenal. So I'm wondering, you know, does the U.S. at this point thanks to Donald Trump, does the U.S. have a diplomatic leg to stand on, really, at this point when it comes to Putin's withdrawal or suspension or whatever we're going to call it from New Start when the U.S. really did something similar ourselves in, in 2019, no? Well, it, the, that's a good point. I mean, we are the ones that historically have walked away from treaties when the Russians have been willing to, uh, to continue to 
uh, abide by them. So the Bush administration, the, the second Bush administration, abandoned the anti-ballistic missile treaty from 1972 mm-hmm. uh, because it wanted to build a missile defense system to deal with the supposed threats from North Korea and, and from Iran. And that alarmed uh, Russia greatly. Uh, this was back in, in, in 2002. And uh, it's one reason why those new weapon systems that I just mentioned that Putin mm-hmm. announced, uh, a lot of those things got started uh, back then. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one side does something and it alarms or disturbs the other. They, they make a response, and then that response in turn triggers another counter-response from the original state that says, ah, you're doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And they'll say, well, but we did that because you did this. I mean, that's how you get, in a very simplistic way, a nuclear arms race. So, you know, yes, we, we have done that, and Yes, there, there certainly were concerns about Russian noncompliance with the INF Treaty, but we there was a mechanism there where we could have talked to them and we chose not to. Uh, they also chose not to fully explain what they were doing, and I don't want to suggest that they, they were in compliance because I don't think they were. Mm-hmm. But walking away from the treaty was essentially giving Putin what he wanted because we didn't get anything in return for that. They were in noncompliance, and then you leave the treaty and they can continue to be in yeah. noncompliance and perhaps do, you know, even more. And with regard to concerns about Chinese ballistic missiles, China was never a party to that treaty. Right. So people uh, who hate arms control uh, will point, you know, say, well, this is why you can't have treaties, because it doesn't constrain everybody. Right. Well, you, know, you can't necessarily do everything. Uh, it was not possible, and I don't think it's currently possible, to bring China into an arms control agreement like that. We should try, absolutely. But if you know, should we hold up any progress with Russia uh, because China is not interested in working with us at this time? I think that would be you know a terrible mistake. And we should ex- set an example for the rest of the world and then bring them into that process. And it is. It seems. It strikes me as not unlike what uh, Trump and and frankly, folks, a lot of folks on the right did regarding the Iran uh, nuclear peace agreement, where they said, "Well, yeah, that's all well and good. However, it doesn't deal with their." They're ballistic missiles, something completely unrelated. So let's kill the whole deal. (laughs) Over the past weekend, Stephen Schwartz uh, at the Munich Security Conference, uh, and this was just days before Putin's announcement at his uh, State of the Nation address, Vice President Kamala Harris declared that Russia has committed, quote, crimes against humanity in uh, in Ukraine. Does that have any legal bearing on something like New START or any other treaty or U.N. agreement, et cetera? Or was her declaration more a statement of position uh, of the U.S. at the time, but it has no actual legal bearings on any of this? Well, I'm not an international lawyer, so I would hesitate to okay. uh, talk in detail about what's legal and what's not. I think it's it's part of part of an ongoing situation where we have a very uh, difficult and, and fractious relationship, and that feeds into our ability and our interest to want to work with Russia, and frankly, for them to want to work, um, you know, with us. But we have this bizarre and completely novel situation now in the nuclear age, where you have one state, you know, uh, fighting an illegal uh, war mm-hmm. and a very destructive war against another state and then threatening other states implicitly and explicitly with its nuclear arsenal if they intervene beyond a certain level. Or I guess initially mm-hmm. it was just don't intervene at all, and obviously we didn't pay any attention to that. Um, so, you know, I, the way I see it, and I'm no big fan of war, 
at all right. uh, is that if we let this, you know, if we let, if we just uh, listen to Putin and say, okay, you're right, we we can't risk nuclear war, so we're gonna we're gonna stand back and let you carve up Ukraine however you want. And hey, if you want to take Belarus and Moldova, yeah. who are we to stop? You, yeah. you know, I, mean, I think that would set a terrible, terrible precedent for the rest of the world, not only with regard to what Russia might do in the future, but other countries that have nuclear weapons yeah. or might want them, and who have leaders that have authoritarian ambitions for power and territorial gain, might say, hey, you know, there's something to this, uh, this nuclear threat maker. Sure. I think we should, we, should, we should do that. And the world has been an incredibly dangerous place for decades now with regard to nuclear weapons, but this is a, a new and dangerous uh, situation that I think we need to put a stop to. Uh, well, I, I, it's it's really troubling because you know one of the reasons that we constantly hear from from folks in this country, and frankly, it's both folks on the far right and on the supposed far left uh, for objecting to the U.S. support of Ukraine, is because oh, Russia has has a nuclear arsenal. And, uh, yes, Putin has, in fact, done a, quite a bit of nuclear saber rattling uh, during this invasion. But the, the notion that, well, he's got nuclear weapons, if, if we continue to oppose him, it could turn into a nuclear war. That seems to me like a signal to, you know, Kim Jong-un, hey, in North Korea, you can go ahead and invade South Korea if you want. Nobody's going to fight you because you've got nuclear weapons. It seems to me on its face to be absurd. That said... Stephen, how how unusual, how dangerous do you view uh, Putin's various threats to use nuclear weapons to be? How seriously should we take it? How seriously do you take those concerns? Well, I'll answer that, but I want to go back to the context of when you asked that question. Even during the Cold War, Mm -hmm. when we and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union back then, had many thousands more nuclear weapons than we do now, we did. We were very careful, obviously. I mean, certainly there were problems like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the closest we ever came to nuclear war mm-hmm. and other incidents. But, you know, we did not sit back and say, okay, you've got nuclear weapons. We are not going to get involved with you in any way, shape, or form. And neither did the Soviet Union. We, we, we traipsed around each other. We fought proxy wars. But we didn't say, okay, we can't do anything because you might annihilate us. Mm-hmm. That was never the deal. Um, so I don't think that would, you know, it doesn't make sense then that we would, you know, do that today. Mm-hmm. How seriously should we take Putin? Well, I think we should be concerned that he is saying these things. I don't think it's likely that he's, he's going to follow through. Why? Because if he does, he knows that he risks not only the destruction of his regime, but the end of his life and uh, everything that he has, has worked for. I mean, he's not, uh, I wouldn't say that he is... Uh, Irrational. He's clearly made some serious mistakes with regard to the prosecution of this war, and we can debate why that happened. But I think he's acting in a way that he thinks, and that's the important qualifier here, that he thinks is rational, mm-hmm. and that he's doing what he thinks is important for his own uh, uh, power, his own legacy, and to the extent that he believes that, the, the future legacy of, of, of Russia. So... I don't think he's going to do anything that would cause all of that to come crashing down around him. That being said, he certainly has the capacity to use one or more nuclear weapons and to ratchet up you know, the threat making he's done, and so do we. So we don't want to do anything that would directly uh, increase the level of tension that we, we already have. And I think the Biden administration and NATO have been very careful. They have not said 
okay, you know, we're not going to do anything because we're petrified of you. They said, okay, we're, we're going to do some things because we think it's important, in uh-huh. the, you know, for the future of democracy. Uh, but we're, we've got certain lines that we're not going to cross. So we're not going to send U.S. troops into Ukraine, for example. Mm-hmm. We're not going to send certain weapon systems. We're also not going to put our nuclear forces on alert, and we're not going to make our own nuclear threats. So if you look at every time Putin has done one of these things, the United States doesn't dismiss it and doesn't panic. They sort of walk down the middle, and I think that's exactly uh, the right approach here. We need to show that nuclear weapons are fundamentally useless, uh, not just for prosecuting war, but also for blackmail. Yes. And we need to isolate Putin in that regard, and we need to end this war as quickly as possible. It's not going to be easy uh, at all, uh, but we've got to do that because otherwise the future world that we're going to live in where that brought to you by nuclear coercion mm. is going to be far worse than anything we dealt with during the Cold War. Brought, brought to you by nuclear coercion. Um, or blackmail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, very quickly, I've got uh, just a minute or two here, Stephen, but I want to uh, try to hit two quick points. One, uh, sticking uh, to Ukraine for a moment, the... Um, the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, uh, it just to make sure I'm not crazy here, didn't that agreement signed by Russia and Ukraine and I think U.S., U.K., Germany, I believe, and several other former Soviet uh, nations, didn't that include a guarantee from Russia in 1994 for the integrity of Ukraine's uh, sovereign border in exchange for Ukraine turning over, giving up their nuclear weapons? To Russia at the time, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when at the time, I believe, Ukraine was actually the world's uh, third leading nuclear power. Wasn't that an agreement in 1994? And didn't Russia break that agreement in in this uh, certainly in this invasion of of Ukraine, but even longer before when uh, when they moved into Crimea and the Donbass, et cetera? The Budapest Memorandum or actually memoranda, because there were C three separate but mm-hmm. virtually identical ones between uh, with Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine uh, were a consequence of the collapse and disintegration of the Soviet Union. You know, most of your listeners might not remember, and even and they, most of them, many of them probably weren't even alive at the time, but uh, there was a real concern when that happened, uh, beginning in the late 80s and then uh, into the early 1990s, that there could be a, a Russian nuclear civil war, mm-hmm. and there could be different states with nuclear weapons fighting against each other, and perhaps you know military leaders that uh, felt very strongly that nuclear weapons were you know the sine qua non of uh, of their existence, that they would do everything they could to hold on to them. So yes, uh, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, weapons that were in Ukraine and in Belarus and in Kazakhstan, these are by the way Russian weapons. They weren't Ukrainian, Belarusian or uh, Kazakh nuclear weapons. They belonged to Russia. Mm-hmm. They were deployed in Ukraine in this instance, just like U.S. nuclear weapons are deployed in Montana, in Colorado, and Wyoming. Mm-hmm. They don't belong to those states. Mm-hmm. So if Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, got her way and the red states seceded from uh, the blue states mm-hmm. or vice versa, mm-hmm. I mean, it's never going to happen. It's an insane idea. But if it did, those nuclear weapons don't suddenly belong uh, to Montana or Wyoming. Right. They are United States nuclear weapons. So... Ukraine had no ability to control those weapons, and they had no real ability to maintain them either. So they're sitting on these weapons that, just by a a quirk of history, are now in their territory, but Mm -hmm. they have no way to use them. And what should they do? 
and there was some serious debates in all three countries about it, and all three, and Ukraine was probably the most fractious, decided to give them up, but they wanted something in return, and what they got in return was a political pledge from Russia, uh, backed by the other countries that signed the agreement, uh -huh. that Russia would respect the uh, ter territorial borders of, of, of the countries and would not uh, use military force or economic coercion against them, except, quote, in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, unquote. So, yes, Russia clearly uh, did violate that agreement. It is not formally a treaty, although I think there are some scholars in Ukraine that consider it one, and it did not require the United States or other countries to automatically come to the defense of these countries, right. but that's, of course, what we've done. And, you know, and I just wanted to get that out there, because I hear a lot of folks who are sort of echoing the Kremlin propaganda on this, on this war, and again, from both the left and the right, and they talk about you know, various, oh, the violations of this and that, and they just don't seem to mention the Budapest memorandum enough, uh, because that seems pretty clear uh, a violation by Russia, and frankly, probably a war that would not be going on at all right now had Ukraine hung on to those nuclear weapons. Last well, yeah? again, Ukraine had no ability to control those right. weapons. And frankly, if they had tried to do that, and if Belarus and Kazakhstan had tried to do that, I think there would have been a military conflict of one kind or another mm. long before now, because Russia was not keen on having those weapons in what they considered breakaway provinces, right. you know, not part of greater Russia anymore. Um, so there was intense interest within Russia in getting the control of those weapons back. Fair so, enough. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that was you know, for people that would say, well, Ukraine should have held on to its nuclear weapons. They weren't their weapons. They couldn't have used them. That wasn't a prospect. And if they had uh -huh. tried, there would have been a war. Fair enough. Last question for you, Stephen. I, uh, as noted during my intro, the notorious doomsday clock at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, where you formerly served as executive director and publisher, that was moved forward a few seconds last month to reflect not only the danger of Russia's war in Ukraine, but our worsening climate crisis, etc. At... Um, 90 seconds now to midnight. It's closer than it's ever been to doomsday, even closer than during the Cold War. I've heard some suggest that that's ridiculous, that the, you know, hair trigger that we were on with the uh, nuclear buildup between the U.S. and USSR during the Cold War was far more dangerous than where we are now. And I don't know if you had a say in this year's Movement of the clock, uh, pushing it closer to midnight or not, as a, a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin still, do you agree with the assessment that we are now closer to doomsday than ever? Well, I haven't had anything to do formally with setting the clock for mm -hmm. over 20 years, so mm -hmm. that's, that's point number one. The other thing, as you mentioned, is that the clock now incorporates and has since 2007, I believe, maybe it was 2008, and now incorporates uh, climate change mm -hmm. and what they call disruptive technologies mm -hmm. and a couple of other things in its matrix of threats of mm -hmm. how close or how far away we are from proverbial doomsday. So it's very difficult to compare, and I, I wasn't responsible for doing those things, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it does make it very difficult to do a one-to-one -one comparison mm -hmm. with past settings during the Cold War because then the only consideration was nuclear threats, not any of the other things, which are important and are obviously global, but are not on the same 
scale in terms of either time scale, you know, how quickly something could happen, mm-hmm. or the level of destruction that something could cause. So, yes, I think it is, it's, it's difficult to make those comparisons, and it might be confusing for some people. I don't know that I would agree that, and maybe it's just part of being older. I mean, I remember being very, very concerned mm-hmm. about nuclear war in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, when I was in high school and then later in college, yeah. and um, you know, thinking that this this might be it. And today, uh, again, it might just be maturity, or maybe I just I know too much. Um, I you know I certainly am concerned about where we are, uh, but I don't feel that same uh, level of threat. And maybe if you'd asked me at the beginning of this current war, I probably would have felt somewhat different because that was truly a unique situation at that point. But we're now we're now a year into this. And I guess we've, we've sort of seen that this, this is a lot of bluster coming out of Vladimir Putin. Now, that, that doesn't mean that bad things couldn't still happen. Just yeah. because he doesn't deliberately do something doesn't mean that something couldn't happen accidentally or unintentionally. Right. I mean, those, you know, all the, all the horrible accidents that we had during the Cold War with nuclear weapons were not by design. It was because somebody did something unexpected uh, or stupid, you know, or a machine malfunctioned. So all of those things could still happen, and that's one reason why we need treaties like New START and future treaties to rein that in to, to keep us from uh, destroying ourselves with literally our own devices. Well, yeah, we do seem to be going in the wrong direction in that regard. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, uh, you know, I joke about uh, how terrible it, uh, the world must be if you are here to uh, join us on the program. In truth, you're one of my favorite guests. I always learn something from you, uh, no matter how terrible it is that you are here. So thank you for that. Uh, Stephen Schwartz can be found, and, and should you, you should follow him if you're on Twitter. Uh, follow Atomic Analyst. Uh, he's got some great historical uh, stuff there. Uh, he is, of course, a nuclear weapons policy analyst, the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of uh, the Atomic Scientists. Stephen Schwartz, always great to have you here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, we have got to get out. We are running late for a change. We My are. thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it for free anytime and share it with everyone you know at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am simply the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 2004. That was the day Secretary of Education Rod Page stated that he considered the National Education Association to be a terrorist organization. He made the remarks during a meeting with governors who were visiting the White House. His apology a few hours later was just as inflammatory. There, he expressed his frustration at the, quote, obstructionist scare tactics the NEA's Washington lobbyists have employed against no child 
child left behind's historic reforms. Representing almost 3 million educators, the NEA had been fighting many aspects of the No Child Left Behind Act passed by Congress in 2001. The teachers' unions had initially supported the measure, but they came to realize that the act was designed to undermine public education in favor of charter, private, and religious schools. No Child Left Behind mandated regular standardized testing of students. It also threatened financial penalties and school closures. Governors on board with the goals of the act soon grew frustrated. The Bush administration reneged on federal funding necessary for its implementation. The union movement was outraged at Page's smear. John Sweeney, then president of the AFL-CIO, said, quote, The Bush administration would like to label all those who disagree with it as terrorists in order to cover up its policies, which are harmful to working families and to divert attention from its inability to create good jobs. By 2015, the No Child Left Behind Act had received so much criticism from every corner that the Every Student Succeeds Act replaced it. This act retains common core standards, but transfers school accountability to the states. It is now pending review under President Donald Trump's Regulatory Freeze Directive. In 2017, it was pending review under President Donald Trump's Regulatory Freeze Directive.